You are listening to the Edu Salon podcast, a space for connection and conversation around education. Each episode, Dr. Deborah Nedelitsky talks with a global education thought leader to provide insights into where education is now and where it might move next. Hello, and welcome to the Edu Salon podcast recorded on the lands of the Ghana people of the Adelaide Plains, to whose elders, past, present and emerging, I pay my respects. My name is Deborah Netalitsky and today I'm excited to be speaking with Chris Munro. Chris has extensive experience in supporting and leading the development of teachers and school leaders, having spent more than 30 years in schools in Australia and Scotland, in initial teacher education and as coach and facilitator. In his current role as Executive Director of Growth Coaching International, Chris leads the organisation while continuing to coach education leaders and design and deliver coaching and mentoring training courses and consultancy projects across Australia and internationally. He has a particular interest in the impact of coaching on school culture and regularly writes and speaks about coaching and mentoring. Chris has presented at major conferences in the UK, Australia and the USA and we've seen each other at some of these and will continue to do so. And uh, for some years, Chris and I were co-moderators along with others of a monthly Twitter chat called EduCoach OC. Uh, so it's really great to connect with you today, Chris. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Deb. And, and likewise, yeah, it's been too long, but there is a fair history there from, from our early days of learning about coaching together. So yeah, it's great to be part of this. Let's start the conversation. I thought we'd start with sort of laying the groundwork, I suppose, because we have connected around coaching for some time. Mm. But I thought for our listeners and to sort of ground our conversation, maybe we can just start with what are coaching and mentoring and why are they Mm. things that we might want to be paying attention to, especially in education? Definition time. Um, I'm probably not going to give a succinct definition. I think one of my areas of interest over the last little while has been around what's needed from you in helping another isn't determined by the title that you have. So I'm a coach, I'm a mentor, therefore I do X and I do Y. And sometimes they're perceived as dichotomous and sometimes they're perceived as conjoined and in the literature, as you and I know well, they, they're mentioned in the same sentence and, and conflated. So I think um, the key difference for me between coaching and mentoring, I think they're both helping relationships. They're both helping by talking, they're forms of helping by talking. And when I say helping, it's helping that person think with more clarity and make progress on something that they want to make progress on. I think that's common to both. I think a key difference is in expectation. Uh, My wonderful colleague and mentor, John Campbell, said this to us actually in one of our Twitter chats many years ago. We had one of our early discussions or debates on Twitter about coaching and mentoring. What's the difference? Because that's usually where people start. And people think they know a lot about mentoring because mentors have been around for a long time in schools. You have mentors for your teacher registration and so on. You're assigned someone and they tend to help you learn stuff that you don't already know, learn routines, jump through hoops of accreditation, all that kind of stuff. And it tends to be someone who's been there, done it and got the t-shirt or got several t-shirts. They have acknowledged wisdom. That's a fuzzy word we could unpack for a whole hour. Uh, But they've got accumulated knowledge and expertise. They've got credibility. And you are soliciting that. Ideally, if you choose a mentor, you're soliciting that. If I sit down as your mentor and I've got nothing to give you, and it turns out I've not been there and done it and got the t-shirts, you're going to be thinking, well, this guy's not really got much as a mentor. You know, what does he bring? So what John Campbell said to us in that response was one of the key differences between coaching and mentoring is expectation. Uh, If I engage with you as a mentor, I'm soliciting your expertise in some way or shape or form. There's there's some caveats around that because you can overdo that. But it's kind of an expectation that you bring stuff that I need to the table. 
Now that can happen in instructional coaching, it can happen in other forms of leadership coaching as well, but it's not automatically an expectation in the more executive coaching, leadership coaching end of, of what I talk about as a continuum. So coaching then is that, but it's actually much more about drawing out first and foremost where I start, the expertise, the knowledge, the resources that you have in and around you. And I might be one of those resources, but it's not an expectation when we engage in that at the start. I'm there to facilitate your thinking. I'm there to support your progress through skillful questioning and, and all the, the usual things that you do as an effective coach. Incidentally, those coaching skills, I firmly believe, are essential skills of a mentor as well. You, you'll sometimes see empathy in a coaching definition. Well, I'd expect a mentor to be empathetic as well, you know, and, and to get it and have mm. contextual empathy, maybe even more so. I've, I've probably just given you a Venn diagram of an answer there with bits of both in it. But um, I think that's part of, the, part of the challenge here is that we want definitional clarity because I want to know I'm doing this thing well and correctly and what's expected of me. But in schools, that can actually be quite limiting and constraining. And when we've started to talk about that broader view of a continuum idea or, you know, what do they need from me right now? More of me, less of me, that kind of uh, thinking. Then some people will actually say that's quite liberating. Mm. So that's where I am in my thinking today, Deb. <laughs> yes, well, I think that's why it's interesting because that definitional clarity is almost impossible, but I think also important because I think everyone that comes to a conversation about mentoring and or coaching comes with their own experience, whether that's of sports coaching, of executive coaching, of having a mentor in one way or another. So we all bring what we think that means. Uh, but I was really interested in how you said helping by talking and no mm. doubt also helping by listening, mm. uh, that that's essentially what it is, that conversational aspect. And I know you've been unpacking that a bit more and more over time. Yeah. What does it mean to help in conversation with someone? Yeah. Uh, and that the expertise you might expect from a mentor is different from a coach in terms of the coach's expertise is really in being a coach, whereas yeah. the mentor's expertise has some kind of expertise in what you want uh, yeah. help or yeah. advice with potentially. But absolutely. But what I will say quite quite firmly is expertise is necessary to be a, an effective mentor or instructional coach. Expertise is definitely part of the requirements, but it's not sufficient. It's far from sufficient. And the missing ingredient is often we have people who are very expert and in Aussie, Aussie parlance, they're gun teachers, you know, they're experts. And we've got lots of positions around Australia and, and elsewhere in the world that, that recognize that expertise. And you've got, you know, um, certifications, you've got different positions in Victoria here. We've got leading teachers. Um, we've got learning specialists who are designated as, as being expert teachers, expert in their craft know about evidence-based practices and so on they bring that body to the table but for some that's quite a heavy mantle to to carry actually of being the expert in the school you know so they bring expertise but they need to show up in a way that doesn't position them as the the expert and the other person is mm. the, the dummy who needs that expertise you know there's a fine line balance there between well you and i know what happens in that relationship around status because of that advice giving and, and expertise thing you know so yes it's an expectation but how and when you deploy it in that conversation sometimes I'll say how and when you unleash it that's a very deliberate choice of slightly more violent term um, is actually key to the relationship I'd say that expertise is necessary but it's, it's certainly not sufficient yeah mm. and the other thing you said that was interesting was which relates to my understanding of coaching uh, even that metaphor of the stage coach as the the vehicle that you get in and you say, driver, I'd like to go to X and the, the coach takes you there uh, yeah. essentially is that you said something around that people need clarity around 
something that they want to work on. So the idea that the coach or the mentor isn't bringing their sense of, well, you need to improve this, but rather that the coach E or the mentee is a co-leader or a driver in some ways or a designer, co-designer of that conversation and that relationship. We've played around with lots of these metaphors over years, haven't we? Um, (laughs) And and they never quite fit, quite fit. But I think what you've just alluded to is it's an always present tension that exists in an education environment. This is not pick your own adventure. You know, you, I'll often joke in workshops that, you know, tongue in cheek, that you don't have freelance teachers in your schools. Well, you're a principal. You don't have freelance teachers in your schools, do you? Don't don't answer that on, on the record. But you might have one or two who think they're freelance teachers. You know, and I, and I say that respectfully. You know, I've, I've been in this game a long time and in schools a long time, that it's easy to, to, to over overplay the sense of autonomy that sounds harsh we want teachers to have autonomy degrees of freedom um but that freedom is always within a form there's always strategic priorities of the organization in most workplaces that's probably the case but in in education where teachers have such a deep-seated rightly so sense of professional identity and professionalism and that's rooted in that qualification experience credentials thinking for a living to borrow some of jim knight's language that becomes part of our identity. And when we go in and start telling people, no, this is what you need to work on, not that, you start to bump into that tension of how much autonomy, how much responsible, or what, what does responsible autonomy mean or responsible accountability mean? And as a leader, it's very tempting to think, no, I know what they need. They don't really know what they need, the poor souls. They, I know what they need, so I'm here to tell them what they need. And that's a really strong draw that we've got in as, as, as humans. You know, we're sitting there doing that as they're talking, you know, so... It's attention, and attention means it's something you need to be aware of. It doesn't mean it's something that you can eliminate, you know, and there's there's lots of those, but that's a key one, I think, yeah. And we've got those frameworks like our professional standards, for instance, yeah. but I think it is interesting to think about what it is that is helpful because while there are strategic priorities of the organisation, professional standards mm-hmm. and so on, that sense of professional identity and of autonomy is so important. When I think back to when I first did my first kind of coaching training and I've done a few different types now one of my aha moments was around what is helpful because I think teachers Mm. and often school leaders who were teachers want to be helpful and I think when I was a young I was a a uh, head of faculty in my second or third year of teaching and and I thought you know when I was doing performance appraisals and so on I thought what's really helpful to my teachers is when I go in think really hard about all the things they can work on and write them on a piece of paper (laughs) and give them that gift of my observations about their capacity for where they can improve, right? So that was, I thought I was working really hard to help people. And then as time went on and as I did my coaching qualifications, I thought, oh, maybe that's not helpful. Maybe what's helpful is to use these kind of coaching skills to draw out from someone what, what they know to be what they need to improve on or let's use some evidence like video evidence or observational evidence for them to reflect on and think what is it that I might want to improve and how might I do that drawing on as you said earlier their own resources so I think that notion of helping through talking might also depend on what you feel is helpful. Helping, yes. I'd maybe say something about it. Because if you you hadn't got on to explain that you saw the error of your ways there, Deb, I would have turned tables on you and said, how did that work out for you? Because I think you saw how that that worked out for you. Yeah, and and lovely people that you have a good relationship with, you have utmost respect for. At worst, when that's overplayed, you're inadvertently deprofessionalizing them. You're doing the thinking for them. And you're you're actually making them feel less 
competent. You've hit all sorts of theories under, underneath this around you know, self-determination theory, motivational theory, all that stuff that we know about. But what you've actually demonstrated is that really strong human tendency that we have. And I hear that when I do training in this regularly, that people say, oh, but, but that's, uh, you can see them kind of struggling with, but that's my way of being helpful. The stuff I know is my source of helpfulness. And trying to then say, and they do see this eventually, but you've got to actually experience it before you actually see it, that these kinds of conversations, whether it's in mentoring or coaching, how you show up in that conversation, how you operate in that conversation, you said it earlier, really intentionally is the key here. That's the helpful thing you're doing. You're servicing their thinking. And in servicing their thinking, there's an inherent call to action, and therefore they're more likely to make progress on that thing that, that they're grappling with at that time. When you come in with your helpful advice, uh, and it's probably overcooked, it's it's probably saying a bit too much, and it's probably loaded with tacit knowledge that you don't make explicit in your explanation. And and you turn to them and you say, well, so you know, I hope that was a helpful. You don't even say, was that helpful? You say, I hope that was a helpful conversation. You know, and of course they've got a choice there to say yes or no. That was rubbish. What they're going to do? They're going to be polite and they're going to say, yeah, yeah, thanks, Deb. That was really helpful. And you're you're welcome. And 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 you feel all leaderly, you know, because you've imparted that wisdom and it's your sense of worth. And there's the one person I always quote in this is is Edgar Schein. Edgar Schein wrote love that lovely little book you'll know of called Helping. His message in that book is not don't give advice. It's definitely not. Sometimes people hear it that way. It's actually that, that we all have this tendency to give advice too readily and far, far too soon. When we see someone stuck, it's quite a, a human trait to tell them what we think. Even when someone has shared something awful with you, something really bad has happened in their life, you don't know what to say. So what you do is you fill it with, I wonder if you've thought of, or, or, or you share one of your war stories that you think's the same. We just... Do, when really all they need is us to empathize and listen and give them space, you know, and then maybe further down that conversation and relationship, release a little bit of our know-how or knowledge or perspective. Sometimes that's all it is. It's just perspective, but all with the intention of helping them think, make progress, move forward. So there's a kind of a mindset in us. There's a stance, which is another term we've been playing around with recently, and it's it's actually hard work, Deb, as you know. You know, when when you first learned to coach, you'll remember coming out of that first coaching conversation going, Oh, that was so much harder cognitively because you're you're self-managing so hard all the time, you know? You are resisting almost your natural impulses in conversation. Yeah. Because as you say, when you're there, you know, sort of holding space for someone, being the mirror or the conduit, helping them to think through their thinking you are withholding your own natural impulses of conversation, whether that's to give solutions or whether that's to uh, look. And I can see you thinking we'll come to your thought in a second. Um, (laughs) Or whether that's to give a a story about yourself. But I think you did write that recent paper with Jason Booten and Trista Holwick in which you talk about this idea of accompaniment and stance and I was thinking as I read through that one of the questions I had for myself was because I talk about a default stance and what does Mm. that in a conversation Mm. what's your default and I think when you learn coaching and when you're trying to apply coaching you're really trying to change your default stance but it comes through a lot of practice and work so I'm wondering yeah Yeah. why do you think it's important we think about default stance Mm. in conversation what is that and then that that term accompaniment I'd love to get to as well. Before I answer your question straight, if I may, can I pick up on a term you used there? You know that mm. there's nobody more self-conscious about language than a coach. 
withholding, withhold, use the word withholding. It's a term that I went, oh, because withholding, and this was Jim Knight. Jim and I, Jim was kind enough to engage me in a, in a discussion, a, a nice little bit of intellectual graft together on email a number of years ago when I was cheeky enough to, to send him a little thing I was thinking about, about this idea of advice and instructional coaching, the place of expertise and all of that. The term that he used that we agreed was actually a, a highly pejorative term, was withholding. That when when he thought about what I was kind of advocating in a more facilitative stance of not spilling out my expertise straight away, he saw that sometimes manifested as I was withholding stuff from you that I knew you would find useful or helpful. And quite rightly, if I am sitting here thinking, no, she really doesn't see this, she really needs this, or I, clearly I've done enough search and she doesn't know this, a blind spot, and I and you come up with an idea and I say, oh yeah, okay, let's see how that works out. And I'm sitting there thinking, no, no, that's a train wreck about to happen, but I've got to, I'm not allowed, to, I'm not allowed to give advice, I've got to withhold it. And then the train wreck happens and you come back to me in the next conversation. You say, oh, that didn't work out. It's really tempting for me to go, well, I didn't think it was going to work out, but I thought I'd let you go anyway. I've damaged the relationship there. You know, that I'm, I've got to be really discerning and, and knowing that stance has to shift in the moment in the conversation based on what I witness you needing. But with that overarching caveat of sometimes what they think they need is not what they need. And what I think they need isn't always the first protocol either. So, what we arrived at and actually borrowed it from you many years ago um, was a was a cognitive coaching term and it was actually about setting aside my knowledge and expertise mm. and that's more palatable 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 to people uh, at times because i'm not denying it i'm not fighting with it sometimes i'm actually literally in my notepad or on a sticky note there's an idea popped into my head and you're talking and i'm trying to listen attentively but in my head my advice monster michael bongistaniers guy is sitting there going i know what you need to do i know what you need to do just tell them what they need to do how do i get rid of that well actually i, I write it in my notes i'll put a little box around it and i've just set it aside physically set that thought aside mm. and if they need it i'll come back because it's there but it stops me fighting with it so there's there's something there about just the language we use around that. If we feel as though we're withholding, we'll feel disingenuous. So that setting aside sometimes helps people. To get back to your question, stance and discernment I would put there as well because you've got to discern in the moment and from conversation to conversation what stance might be required of me right now. And that might be a more mentor-like stance or a more coach-like stance than conventional definitions. So I talk about that continuum. And then as, as Jason and Trista and I have talked and, and nutted this out. It's been a joy to do that as well. That paper was back and forth for months and months and months. It was us making sense. It was actually sense making. The way we wrote it was a think piece as well. And Trista, I've got to acknowledge as the expert in the, the term accompaniment, it came up in one of our online chats as well. And she, she'd give you a better explanation of it than, than I will. But that notion of walking beside on a journey, not out front, of being at those points in the journey. And it's a developmental journey we're talking about here where we reach a junction or we reach a point of decision or we reach a pause point in the conversation, for example. What does accompaniment look like in that man, that moment? And sometimes it might be exploring possible next steps or next routes with that person. That's part of it. It's not leading the way, but it's actually being there as a co-wayfarer on the journey, if you like. We're on this together. So therefore, we can both discuss dialogically what the options might be at this point, which way do we want to go? The overarching thing in that though is is most of the time we in that default that you mentioned, 
we're positioning the coachee or our partner as the prime decision maker. Sometimes in more mentoring like uh, um, traditional uh, scenarios, there is that perception that it's expert novice. So it's shovel and let me drive and, and I'll, I'll be the driver for a bit. And the trick there is not to stay in the driving seat for too long before you, through your use of questioning, through your use of the paraphrase and so on, you bring them back into the driving seat and the decision-making place. The stance thing was fascinating because it was a term that I had just started using and lots of others have used it as well. You used it yourself. But Jason picked it up and he said, you know, that's helped. And, and what Jason said that was really helpful in this little dialogue we had was that he had been in the habit, and I remember this myself, of saying, I'm going to take my coach hat off now and put my mentor hat on. So you and I would be in a coaching or mentoring conversation with someone and we'd say, can I just put my mentor hat on for a minute? And he always found that challenging, but he couldn't put his finger on why. Neither could I, to be honest, till we had this conversation. And he said what it was, was there was something about that hats on, hats off that was very black and white and one or the other. And it doesn't, isn't actually really like continuum. Yeah. And actually the other thing was it's signaling right there and then that they might be going, oh, okay, what's this going to be like then? So it was always jarring in the conversation when he did that and felt that. And and I thought I I can see that because I remember myself doing that. And then somewhere along the line, I stopped doing that without deliberately stopping doing it. But novices often talk about, I'll put this hat on, that hat on. And for me, it makes them more dichotomous. It makes them more, uh, I don't know, it's clunky in the conversation as well. And what he said to me that was the start of that think piece was, stance sounds like something or feels like something that's more embodied. And it was the word embodied that, that got us both thinking on it. Thought, oh, right, that's a really interesting word. Tell me more, Jason. What do you mean by, what do you mean by embodied? You know, tell me about that. And he said, well, it's kind of a... Ah, and it was like this. We were kind of go, ah, what is it? It's you could hear the thinking in that silence. It was, it should be imperceptible, indiscernible. It, you shouldn't even be noticing. The, the coach, you shouldn't be noticing. You are, you're conscious. As the you're mental shifting. coach shifts in the conversation, as they, shift, as, as, they as they see what the other person needs, the experience should be seamless for the coachee mentee. Exactly. They're just there doing their best thinking. And you're subtly shifting. So every time I talk about it, I can't help weaving back and forward like this. Or if I'm in a workshop room, I'm pacing up and down the continuum. Um, and, and I had an interesting chat with Jim years ago as well about this, that he his, one of his helpful provocations was, well, if it's on a continuum and I'm not there or there, where on earth am I? Am I somewhere in between? And what he was advocating for was definitional clarity of I'm facilitative, I'm dialogical, or I'm directive. And... I still stand by and, and we've reached a point of agreement there that, yeah, those are helpful terms at points, but there's still a shift between them. It's not a hop and a hop because that's just three hats then, isn't it? And they tend to be siloed. Um, and when I've presented that, I've heard people say, oh, yeah, that's the kind I do. And they pick one of the three. And that's not what that was meant to convey either. So since we tried to convey conversations like this are an easier way of conveying the nuance of what we're talking about here. When we start to put it on a diagram or an illustration in an article, these things become fixed, don't they? And it's it's hard, yeah. I also had a, a walk to a conference, I think, with Jim in Melbourne one time and talking about those those definitions and instructional coaching versus other types of coaching, dialogic sort of coaching and what that looks like. And I think the struggle with these things is because of the desire 
to be clear and intentional in the conversation. But I think what I'm hearing from you is that, and probably it's something I've done in my practice just in professional conversations as a school leader, I suppose I don't go in and say, I might say, what do you want from this conversation? Or I might say, how would you like me to be in this conversation? But I don't necessarily name what I'm doing. Mm. I just read the person in the moment and think, okay, where are we at? And try and have the default for myself as being not to step in and solve others' problems and give them advice unless Mm. I see that that would be useful or that I might offer them some options. So it's about wanting on the one hand to be intentional because I think if you're having a coaching conversation with someone and they don't know that or expect that or have experienced Mm. what that might be like, deep Mm. listening, uh, long pauses, uh, paraphrasing and not getting something back like maybe they might expect, then that can be jarring as well. So there is that need to understand the space in which you're operating but uh, not necessarily to be naming it all the time to interrupt the conversation, I suppose, and the thinking. Definitely. If you go back to your earlier career self that you mentioned earlier about you know, Deb, the serial advice giver, um, which is what most of us <laughs> are. Great advice, Chris. Yeah. It was Deb, great advice. Deb, the serial advice giver. I'm sure it was. Sure it was. And and absolutely no doubt about that. It, so that, that just illustrates the point, doesn't it? But if you go back to then, and and then all of a sudden you've you've seen the light, and you're going to try and operate differently in conversations, the people on the other side of you are going to be thinking, "What's happened to Deb?" Where she's usually got loads to give us, and that's really helpful. What's this? I, I, this is hard because I'm doing all the thinking here, and I, we don't want stealth coaching. We really don't. I've I've heard people use that term. The word stealth sounds sneaky to me, and and we've all walked away from conversations in our professional and personal lives where we thought, "Hang on a minute, what happened there? Some I feel like I've just had something done to me in that conversation." If it feels like, if any of our professional conversations feel like that, we're not doing it right. I think, uh, unless we're deliberately going around trying to manipulate people. But actually naming that up front, often when we're grappling with this, with people learning to get better at this. Um, and it is a, you, you and I are examples of how it is a work in progress. We're still, there's still days when others don't get the best versions of us in conversation for lots of different reasons. You're always working on it and, and honing it. But eventually, I think it does become a default way of showing up in conversations in all sorts of contexts. But to begin with, people really grapple with that how how they need to be in the moment. And actually, I would say, and, and how they name it, how they name it, what do you need from me right now? And sometimes what the person says they need from you isn't really what's the best thing. From I just need you to tell me. Sometimes that is what they need. Sometimes it's not, you know. And so you've been able to openly say, well, here's, you might notice I'm showing up a bit differently here. I'm, would it be okay if I asked a few questions just to help us think this, help us think this through a bit more? So I'm actually coming alongside you in that language. The subtle shifts in language that start to happen that just become the way you operate in conversations. I think what I would say, though, that we've realized in the time of doing this is that actually taking that, what we might call a coaching approach or adopting a coaching stance in lots of different conversational contexts that are not formal let's sit down for an hour every couple of weeks to track your progress on goal X or whatever. When it's not in that formal, bounded, clear expectation setting, we reckon it's actually harder. It's harder to do well. Uh, It doesn't mean you can do harm, but it means to, to actually do that consistently and to really work consciously on that way of showing up for others in conversation and then helping others around you to do that so it becomes these are the predominant ways we converse and relate around here. 
that probably takes more self-discipline, more self-management than those nice, convenient one-hour, half-an-hour coaching sessions that we set up. And I still do it with, with senior leaders. You know, I could be coaching you and I show up in the Zoom call and off we go for an hour. You know the boundaries around it. You know my role, expectations of you. Doing that in the moment when someone wanders into your office and says, have you got a minute, Deb? is probably more challenging. We think you probably need to learn, or we, we, we certainly assert that, that, that you need to learn to do this formally first. It helps to have some boundaries and, and constraints around it. And then the thinking is, so how do I deploy those skills, techniques, and really, really importantly, way of being, how I show up for others, and all those other conversations that aren't considered formal coaching relationships or cycles, you know? So it's kind of evolved. You've taken me on a journey here, Deborah, of how that's that's kind of evolved over time. It's still evolving, yeah. And you reminded me about a term that Rachel Lofthouse introduced to us at a conference we were at, which was semantic space, the mm. the talking space, the mm. professional conversation space, how we show up, talk, listen, yeah. speak with yeah. and to one another. And I know that a lot of work you've done is around whole school cultures of coaching, mm. coaching as leading, coaching for agency. How do you think coaching links into that cultural mm. piece beyond the one person with another person in a conversation how does that potentially filter out into a, an organizational culture mm. i think it does but i think the actual notion of what it looks like and what the what the contributing factors are is still emerging and you and i know you know we're comfortable with that kind of emergent notion but some people aren't they want to know how do you the word implementation for example how do you implement a coaching culture like ooh I think you and I would agree completely that a coaching culture emerges around some intentional things you're doing, but I'm not sure there are there's step one, step two, step three to implementing a coaching culture because it, it's so context dependent. Now, that doesn't mean we know nothing. That doesn't mean it's, it's pick your own adventure at a whole school level, but you also know that culture is a fuzzy thing as well, you know. Um, what what we're talking about here is, and we've tried with Christian Van Yerberg, Margaret Barr and I wrote a book chapter on it. You were one, your school at the time was one of the little case studies in it. Took an inordinate amount of time to write that thing, but we got it out there. Um, <laughs> and it was, you changed role two or three times by the time we got it published. We we pinned some things, you know, the, the things that we saw working in those different schools where there was something in the school I left, I, I started to say there were the embryonic signs of what might be a coaching culture and how provisional is that language? You know, that what signs and might be a coaching culture. But what I was talking about there was it, it did start to become, this is how we talk around here. It was sustained over time. It didn't, and I, I know it's still happening there. It didn't leave when I left. So that's a sign that, it, that it's something mm. that's built in now. But it starts somewhere. And in our cases, it started in different ways. I heard you talk to Christian Van Uerberg on this podcast a while ago, and you talked about your school where it was voluntary one year and compulsory the next year, and it was the gift that you were given to everyone of coaching and how that worked out. And I knew that as well, you know, and I was on that journey at the same time as you learning from your experience and taking knowledge from all sorts of places. But we started with coaching in the middle, a team of just a small team of coaches, a couple of coaches, and it was whatever goal you want to work on, it was getting people used to it. We then, it became coaching as a way of leading. So we worked with the middle and senior leaders to think about how they have intentional conversations. We didn't get to instructional coaching because there wasn't a really well-defined instructional model in the school or frameworks around that at the time. So that made that tricky. That would probably emerge one hand in hand with the other over time. Um, and then there was start of some conversations, that's as far as it got around, how do we take this kind of approach with students? These conversational techniques seem to be generating 
agency and a sense of some degree of autonomy and control. They're helping people get unstuck. They're helping people feel more competent and capable. Couldn't we get those things happening across the whole organization? Wouldn't that be great? But it then needed someone to actually champion that. It needed endorsement from leadership to really go at it consciously. And that's what we sometimes see as missing. So what we do know is there are things like you need to identify that there's a need for the conversations to be better. You need to talk about it in that term. This is not just about coaching. It's about how we talk around here. But it's more than that. It's about how we relate and what we expect to see as a result of that. So clearly training is part of it. That's the world I spend my professional life in now because you need to build what's called an internal coaching resource. So we've seen that as common in all the examples. And that resonates with what Christian Van Neuerberg and and Helen Gormley found in their research before of coaching in organizations and coaching cultures in organizations outside education. An internal coaching resource is what you need to build to sustain it. So you need the conversational capacity and skills and knowledge and common language and all that. Someone who's going to lead it and champion it. If you're also the principal and the champion, well, that's that's a recipe for disaster, isn't it? Because you, you don't have the energy or headspace to really do that justice. But what what the champion does need is, or the strategic kind of coordinator of it, is the endorsement and support and resourcing from the decision makers in the school. And if you don't have that, you kind of do it with one arm tied behind your back some of the time. But you can still do it, but it'll be slower. Mm-hmm. And then I think what you and I saw happen in our context was that it actually changes quite organically over time. So the notion of a coaching culture, maybe even the notion of school culture, is an, is an emergent phenomenon. Uh, And the key thing, I think, now when we're supporting schools who come to us and say, we want a coaching culture, well, my first question is, and what would that look like? Um, And there's a long conversation that ensues from that, because often it's this thing that we feel that we should have, but I don't really know what it looks like. And they'll say, oh, you tell me, what should it look like? Well, there's different things you might see. What might you be noticing more of? How will we amplify those? How will we build on those? Where might we need to reroute and, and try? So it's test and try and build capacity. And all the time, there's a consistency of message around why we're doing this. And when that's worked well, that has hung around. It's not been a fad. It's not been that thing we did two years ago. Maybe we did that coaching thing two years ago. It doesn't It doesn't become that. And then the final stage is, it's, and Christian and Helen Gormley called this normalization in their research that they, they looked at. In schools, it starts to appear in strategic plans. So the language of coaching or or intentional conversations or ways of being with each other, an organizational way of being might be what you call a coaching culture is another way of thinking about it. They start to appear in strategic plans. And when they appear in strategic plans, then they tend to be resourced rather than just things that someone's been trying out on the side and trials. It moves from pilot and trials to something that's sustained and planned for over time. And we've got some really good, especially in Australia, some really, really good stories of success there where schools have really got that going and it's a range of things where they've got designated coaches but they've also got coaching and coach-like conversations happening at all sorts of levels in the organization from how they run team meetings to how professional learning communities operate to and it doesn't mean they're all now coaches it means they're all actually much more skillful and intentional in how they manage the dialogue between them and how they service each other's thinking that's a helpful question thank you One thing I'm wondering is, you know, you've been in this space for a long time, first as a practitioner in a school and then now at Growth Coaching International and as a coach and as an executive director of the organisation, and you've explored lots of different aspects of coaching in that time, including more formal ones and then ones like the coaching approach or the new book that you're writing around being a conversational leader, so that conversation and intentionality of conversation more broadly. So as you look back at 
I suppose, your own thinking and coaching journey. Is there somewhere you've moved? Are there things you lean more into or away from now than you used to? Are there are there ways in which your thinking about this has changed over time? Hmm. That's a good question. I've made a lot more sense of that that positioning of expertise and knowledge because I remember when I learned to coach facilitatively and the message I got from my training at the time, a bit like when you did cognitive coaching training, I was doing accreditation with, with GCI. And the message then and the way we designed the course was it was almost thou shalt not, you know, ever give advice. Um, and I've since met other participants who've done the courses in the past and they say, oh, this is, and they've actually used the word liberating in the way we now talk about it. And they are mature enough and, and intelligent enough and perceptive enough to know that that comes with health warnings. It's not, yeah, just let the floodgates open and give as much advice as you like. That's not what we're saying. But it's actually knowing ourselves. There's much more focus on self-management, self-awareness, and noticing when that's happening. So I think there's a, there's been a, a shift for me in my thinking there. The joy of getting to do what I do, Deb, is that I've actually been able to make that evolutionary journey of my own thinking and understanding my job <laughs> as well, which is mm-hmm. just such a privilege. You know, you I spoke to you at the time when I took this job, you know, way, way back. And well, it's about seven or eight years ago now. And it, it was that stepping out of school and getting into this. But the joy of it is I'm in that, I get to live and work in that thinking space of still helping others make sense of it. And, you know, Jim Knight talks about the partnership principle of reciprocity. And I, I get that every time. This conversation has been a reciprocal learning experience. You know, the, every time I stand and do a workshop, every time I have a coaching conversation, it's always reciprocal. But I think, actually, my rambling answer has helped me pin something that has shifted. I now get what that means, that I have to go into these conversations expecting that. And I'm then on the lookout for it. And I'll often go, oh, wow. I've not heard that in that before, that version of that before. And you know, that's really helped me think about X. And I'm modeling when I'm doing a workshop, but it's actually genuine. So I think I've kind of got my radar more tuned to the things I'm hearing, the things I'm noticing uh, in conversation. And that's gone well beyond when you start, you're very self-conscious. And I often joke with people when we train you to be a coach, we're actually going to make you really self-conscious about conversation and language for the first day or so, and then beyond. And then gradually what you learn to do is how, is how to manage that and harness that, you know, to, to help others. That's what you're doing effectively. And I think if we can get that happening more routinely across education communities, I think it can only be a good thing. And like with any skill, the more you do it, the more you develop some automaticity in it. You do. So that you, do. Yeah. So that, so that you can then build layers onto your practice. And that's your default thing, isn't it? It's, yeah, there are things that become just, this is the way I do things now. It's not changing anymore. This is now how I show up in conversations this is a repertoire of skills and techniques I've got. So we're coming to the end of our time together. So I'm going to move us to what I call the enlightening round, oh. the final five questions. The first of which, Chris, is what is something, and I'm looking forward to this answer, what is something <laughs> unexpected? I don't know it. So that's why I'm excited. What is something uh, unexpected that many people might not know about you? I used to be a Scottish junior champion in fishing, would you believe, in my past. Fishing's my other passion, fly fishing in particular. That's the other thing I teach mm. people now and again. But yeah, in my dim and distant past, I was I actually had a little trophy that said I was the Scottish Junior Champion at one point. So that's often a surprise. People who've never met me and see the name, they, the thing that surprises them is the accent as soon as they open my mouth, because for some reason they don't mm. they don't guess what nationality you are. But yeah, that's that's probably the only other thing that people might not know about me. Other than that, I'm a pretty ordinary ordinary person. Yeah. <laughs> 
And how about what's currently on your desk? There are two things. Um, one's a book. There's lots of books on the desk. Of course, that ever-growing pile that sits and glowers at you that you, you keep meaning to read. Hey Sun Moon's latest book is the one that's there top of the pile just now. I think it's got the best coaching title of any book I've ever seen. Coaching A to Z, the extraordinary use of ordinary words. Uh, that's just the best phrase. It's one that you wish you'd thought of yourself. It's amazing. Um, so I've been dipping in it a bit. The other th- important one, actually, and this is this may be the other thing that people wouldn't know about me, is a piece of wood. You can see that on camera. Uh, it's a piece of, um, you know, when you do touch wood for good luck kind of thing. I've actually got this on my mm. desk and a little pencil thing. It's a piece of African ebony, and it's such a hard material. And it's it was given to me to make something out of, and I've still never made anything out of it, by my very first mentor. Uh, a guy called Jim Clark. Sadly, he's no longer with us. Jim retired in 1992, no, 93. Uh, I started teaching in 92. And I got to start early on a part-time timetable because they needed design and technology teachers in Aberdeen. So I got the luxury start to my career where I had a mentor who I shadowed the whole time for the first year. He was a master craftsman. So to this day, I've got this in my desk to remind me of him and that mentoring that that Mm. he gave me as a start. So someday I'll make something out of it. But um, I don't have access to school machinery anymore. So if anybody knows a good workshop, I could (laughs) could go and do it. But yeah, so there's that bit of wood that reminds me of that. And it makes me think of, of an effective mentor as well. Something there that's really symbolic of one of your first early professional relationships. Oh, yeah. Nice to be able to think about them, actually. Yeah. Who is someone, someone or someone else that inspires you in the work that you do? Uh, I'm really lucky. I'm really lucky. And this sounds trite to say, you know, well, I've got Jim Knight and I've got Christian Van Eurberg as colleagues, you know, but Christian's the one actually, not, no offense to Jim in different ways. Um, uh, Christian is just such a good role model. I mean, you've, you've met him, you've spoken to him as well. Uh, he, he walks the talk, he lives it. And, and I've said to him directly, and he's so humble. His biggest strength is he's great at being appreciative. I'm still in too much of a hurry sometimes. I'm still the self-deprecating Scott deep down. And and I don't tend in the, the Australian tall poppy thing. I tend not to shine a light on positives and, and things. I default to glass half empty sometimes. And Christian's the tonic to that. Um, he's he's not a, a you know smiley faces everywhere, let's just pump sunshine. He's a realist and a pragmatist, but he, he models that so well. And some days when I see him in action and I'm in meetings with him, I've said to him, you make me want to be a better human being at times or a better leader. So I'm lucky I've got I've got somebody like that on my shoulder to, to be a role model. Yeah. Fantastic. What's something that you've got coming up that you're excited about? Oh, well, well something that we've got coming up, actually. So we're both presenting at the, the Halt Summit. Actually, as I say that, I'm realizing you might be publishing this after the event. So, yeah, but <laughs> we are at the time we're recording this. Yeah, I think just People after. know we record this in advance, right? It's not on the Sunday when you when you release it. But, yeah, um, yeah, the Halt Summit, the, the Australian Institute of Teaching and School Leadership, ATSL, uh, have this summit every year where they bring together the highly accomplished and lead teachers. Um, and these are people, like I said earlier, who have acknowledged, credentialed levels of expertise. They've worked really hard to, to get through the process of that. They've got an accreditation process and they're certified at that particular level. The challenge is how do you utilize that and make make best use of that? How do they leverage that in schools? How do their schools leverage that? So I'm going to be presenting some notions, no surprises based on what we've talked about around conversations and that might be the missing ingredient or an ingredient to, to uh, amplify there. Um, so yeah, I'm going to be looking forward to that and I'm going to be looking forward to seeing you in person for the first time in years and years and years as well. Mm. So, um, yeah, it's been it's a long time. It's going to be good time. in Melbourne. Yeah. So yeah, that's the big thing just now. I'm looking forward to that yeah. too. 
And my final question is, if you were to distill your current thinking about education down to its essence, what is one thought or resource that you would leave listeners with? <laughs> you like to finish in a big question, don't you? Um, just the essence of education. Essence of, yeah. essence of your yeah, thinking, Chris, okay. I suppose. Yeah. What's important? Yeah. Do you know, it, it, it goes back to that stance thing. It really does. I think that's what's become more important. And it, and it sounds deceptively simple, doesn't it, to say it's all about conversations. We've got some lovely quotes that we cite, you know, the, the fundamental unit of change is, is conversation. I think I'm going to use that slide at the start of my keynote. Um, Paul Jackson and, and Janine Walwyn. And if you change the conversation, you change everything around it. And that sounds like what we do is just a conversation. But it's not. It's actually a whole combination of how we show up. It's intentionality and things. So I think if if we can help each other to to think about how how am I showing up for others? You know, education communities are built on relationships, and and I know and you know that it's not that different right around the world. And and sometimes when we talk about this kind of work around improving conversations and more intentional, that's the big thing that resonates with people. That's where you and I discovered it and went ah. Right, okay, this might be why some of the professional learning was working, some of it wasn't. This might be why we're seeing change or pushback or not. That actually I'd like people to be thinking about that idea of stance. How am I showing up? You know, that's stance in the dictionary definition is, is posture and where I'm putting my feet and stuff, a golf swing and your stance for that and so on. But I suppose figuratively, it's how am I operating in this conversation to best service that other person's thinking and progress? If we want to professionalize each other and and hold the bar high and help each other be the best they can be, then that that relies on both sides of that conversation. So as someone's conversation partner, how do I need to show up to be of best service to them? That's that's probably the thing that's front and center in my mind just now. Yeah. How's that? So in conversation, being in service of others. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I remember I said in serv- I show up, everything I do in coaching is in service of the other person's thinking. And a very learned colleague said, and is it just thinking? Are you are you just getting them to think? And I went, well, no, actually, of course not. Well, okay, what do you mean, of course not? Well, in that, it's a call to action. It's progress. And the word progress is actually slightly different from the word action. You know, we often talked about action-orientated conversations. Progress could just be a shift in my thinking. It could be a change in attitude. It could be a commitment to do something or try something different. It could be a concrete step. But that notion of progress towards something better, um, if we were all doing that with each other towards that something better, I think we'd be on the right track. We tend to be finding more common ground then rather than these kind of adversarial dichotomous uh, conversations we keep having. Yeah, That's what I yeah and finding yeah. space to be listened to and to, yeah, to be listened to. Well, yeah, she doesn't that's it. Well, my, my other favourite quote in the world is is Nancy Klein's one that the the quality of your attention determines the quality of the other person's thinking. A great note for us to end on today. So, thank you, Chris, so much for joining me today on the Edgy Salon. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. It's been fun. Thank you for listening to the Edgy Salon podcast. You can join the conversation by subscribing to this podcast and sharing it with your network by giving this podcast a rating or review and by connecting with Deb and her guests on social media.